You are listening to The Mother Good Podcast, episode number 48. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. Dr. Brighton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. I'm excited too. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time now. I'm pretty familiar with your works and your book, and I, I follow you on social media as well. And I heard you on some podcasts, and I'm just so excited because I just think it's you have a voice that's really missing in especially the healthcare professional space. So for everyone who's listening who isn't familiar with who you are, could you just give a brief background of your experience and what your mission is and everything? Yeah, well, I believe very much I was put here to help people understand the body they live in and get the best information to make the best decision for themselves. So um, you know, it was once I was in naturopathic medical school, so I'm a naturopathic physician. I'm unique in being a doctor that I have a background in nutrition. So I studied nutrition science and chemistry because I'm a bit of a nerd, um, before going on to naturopathic medical school. And it was there that I realized like how little I actually knew about my period and my menstrual cycle. Now in medical school, you learn a whole lot about the body that you never knew about. And, and like rightly so, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're specializing in. But to have that epiphany that I had to go to medical school to understand what my body was doing monthly and just having a period and ovulating, that really isn't the way things should be. And I really believe we shouldn't have to go to medical school to understand the body that we live in. And it's so unfortunate that often it isn't until we have problems that anyone takes the time to explain this to us. I think, you know, one of the biggest things is that it isn't until you struggle with infertility that your doctor then takes the time to explain to you that you can only become pregnant one day out of the month. You only ovulate one day out of the month. The egg lives 24 hours. And really, this is the information we should be getting you know, before we even get our period. So that's a bit about my work. I'm an international speaker. I'm an author of two books so far, uh, a book on the fourth trimester. That was my first book. And my second book is Beyond the Pill, which is all about navigating your hormones, both your natural hormones or the synthetic ones of birth control that you might be taking. I was pretty surprised when I read in your book that the the period is called or known as like the fifth vital sign. Could you just explain that a little bit further? Just, I mean, it just goes along with what you were saying that, you know, women really should be more aware of what is going on with their body. And unfortunately that they aren't. And then also what should women be looking for when analyzing or I guess, interpreting this fifth vital sign in, in order to know that they're doing it correctly? Mm-hmm. You know, that was um, the American uh, College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who deemed, and, and people may know this as ACOG. Um, if you've ever had a baby, then you've probably heard of ACOG. Um, so it was them who said the period is the fifth vital sign. Really, the menstrual cycle is the fifth vital sign. And what is the vital sign? Well, your blood pressure, your temperature, your respiration rates, you know, these are vital signs that help us understand, you know, how healthy are you? 
Are, are you having any issues that warrant further investigation? And your period is right there along with them because it provides such a unique insight to a woman's body. And so with a period, you know, often, so we, we, you know, I'm trying to really help people reframe the way they think about a period is usually like, that's the whole goal of the menstrual cycle. And yet the period is a consequence of an egg not being fertilized. So the goal of the menstrual cycle is ovulation and and to hopefully have a baby made, um, whether or not you want a baby right now, it's still a good idea to, (laughs) we just won't tell your body, but we want your body to still think (laughs) that we can, because that's how we really get optimal hormones. So with that, what we want to be looking for is that, you know, is your period regular? Is it predictable? Not everybody has 28 day cycles. So if your period's coming every 26 days, fantastic. If it's every 26 to 28 days, fantastic. It's If it's coming, you know, 35 days, 45 days, I don't know when it's coming. That's an issue. So we want to be tracking when our last menstrual period is. So your doctor should be asking your LMP um, so that when you go to your doctor's visit, this is information that we want to know. So we want to know when does your period start? How long does it last? Is it lasting three days, five days, seven days, more than seven? That's um, abnormal. We need to investigate what's going on with that. Is it heavy? How heavy is the flow? It's important that you quantify this information for your doctor. If you go to your doctor and you say, my period's heavy, they might brush you off. It's unfortunate. This should never happen. Um, And there are really great doctors that this doesn't happen with, but there are doctors out there that will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Periods are just heavy. Periods are just painful. Periods are just awful. No, (laughs) they're not. Um, If they are, we need to figure out why. So when I say quantify, how many days is it heavy for? And what does that look like for you? Do you have to double up and use a tampon and pad to go to bed at night? Are you changing a tampon or pad um, in the middle of the night? Are you changing a tampon every hour? What size is that tampon? Like That's the kind of information that we need to know. And then are you seeing clots? Is it they're really thick uh, clots? Are they bigger than a quarter? Uh, what is the color of the blood? So, you know, there's people out there that say, oh, you can diagnose um, hormone issues or conditions by period blood color alone. You cannot. It is one data point that it needs to be married with other a whole other data set to understand what is going on. But it's helpful to know, like, it, does your period start off with brown discharge? How long is that? Um, does it end with that? That's not abnormal. But if it goes on for like three or more days, yeah, like that's, you know, that shouldn't be tapering in that way. And then we want to know other symptoms. So if you ovulate, then there shouldn't be PMS if you have optimal progesterone. So following ovulation, your egg, um, your egg's released. And what's left behind is a structure called the corpus luteum. And that's what produces our progesterone. And that progesterone carries us through the luteal phase. That's the second half of your cycle. If there's no beta HCG, then we, we drop our hormones and we have a period. That, that progesterone is what helps us feel really chilled out, really calm, in love with our life. It's when we look at our kids and we're like, I just love you so much. Um, and, you know, as a mom, I will say that <laughs> I have personally gone through low progesterone, peer, you know, cycles where I have PMS and I look at my child and I'm like, I have to hide in the closet from you right now because I cannot <laughs> take one more moment of this. Um, that's like, that's a normal thing, by the way. Um, and I say this because I have the privilege of, you know, talking to so many mothers behind closed doors. 
um, that say like, sometimes I just hide in the closet for my child. I'm like, I've totally done that. I've totally like hit and been like, I just need a little break or being like, I lock myself in the bathroom. Um, and my child can't find me or I'll just go really quiet. And I just like get a minute. And there's a lot, a lot of women who report this. And yet then we feel like, um, you know, we, but we don't talk about it because we feel guilty about it. But if it's like that every single cycle and you're starting to know like three to five days before my period, I just, can't stand my husband. I can't stand my partner. I can't stand my children. Like that, you're probably not getting ample enough progesterone, or something's going on with your estrogen. So, it's things like that we want to know. Also, acne, headaches, uh, gastrointestinal issues. Some people get diarrhea with their period. Um, you can get constipated just before your period because of high progesterone. Then prostaglandins come in, and you're pooping yourself while bleeding heavily and having terrible cramps. It's not fun. Um, and anyone who's had a baby, um, we all poop um, when we have babies because of prostaglandins. They are really, really potent chemical-like uh, basically ingredients your body is putting into the cauldron that is your uterus to get it to contract um, and uh, to you know bring baby into this world. And it also can stimulate your bowels as well. So hopefully we just busted like some myths right there. Yes, moms hide from their children. And yes, we poop ourselves during childbirth. <laughs> that actually makes me feel better. I'm 36 weeks pregnant right now. And I must be having some of those hormone imbalances because yeah, just the past few days, I'm like, gosh, my toddler's talking too much right now. <laughs> Normally that doesn't bother me. So that's so well, funny. That that you like, that. You're also, you, you know, you get fatigued. Here's the thing is just because um, women, you know, grow these humans in their body and that's just like the way it's been since forever doesn't mean it's not something that doesn't deserve respect or at least a moment of pause to be like, this is an incredible thing and it's incredibly energetically demanding. Um, Being pregnant with a toddler, that is something special, right? Um, (laughs) I joked that when my son was a toddler that I was like, it's, you know, constant suicide watch in some ways because he would just be like jumping off of things or exactly really into this sardine phase and this is really funny um he went into the kitchen and opened up like every can of sardines and ate them all but like i am like terrified of like sardine can metal edges (laughs) and like i don't know how his little fat baby wrist did not get cut up and i also don't know how he had the super strength to open up the sardine cans. Um, but it's things like that. So, um, you know, to also just recognize that it's not just physical. I mean, when you're at 36 weeks, there's changes that are happening in your brain as well. And taking care of a child, a young child, it's a lot of brain power, like a tremendous amount of brain power. And that can be exhausting as well. That's such a good point. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up too about normal periods because I was going to ask you a little bit more about that. So I'll, I'll just ask a few follow up questions for that before jumping into the pill, which obviously we want to to discuss. So you did mention that for normal periods, that you know they're it's okay if they come like every 26 days or something like that. Is there? So I guess basically what you're saying that as long as they're coming at the same amount of days per month um, and they're generally within the certain time frame, then you shouldn't be too concerned about it. Like, or is there ever a limit? Like, I don't know, fifty or six uh, coming every fifty or sixty days. I have a friend that has one. I think like every fifty-four days or something like that. Is that something to be of concern about, or is it just more of like how regular it is? 
Yeah, that is something to be concerned about. So over 45 days, so 45 days or more, we start to get concerned like this, you know, it can be possibly polycystic ovarian syndrome. We start to look at hypothyroidism. Um, there can be an issue with excess androgens taking place. So we want to be looking at like, is there anything else going on? And are there other symptoms as well? Because that's a, I mean, we're talking about every, uh, you know, two months having a period. That's a, that's a long period of time. Um, and then, um, you know, in terms of like how short, you know, if it's less than 24 days, that's where we start to get concerned about, uh, what's happening with your progesterone is your corpus luteum functioning. It gets termed a luteal phase defect if you're having, um, 21 days or less. And that's basically that you're not carrying, you're not being carried through the luteal phase. Um, and that can be a progesterone issue. And that can be an indication that you may struggle to become pregnant in the future or to maintain a pregnancy. Interesting. Okay. And then what about, have you ever heard of like the fertility awareness method and natural family planning, those sorts of things? I only bring that up because I know that they tend to say that, you know, your period is healthy or normal or not, depending on how much mucus is showing or the consistency of the mucus. I know that you mentioned that, you know, the color of your period doesn't really tell you that much unless it's in combination with something else. Is there, what about analyzing mucus and things like that? Is that something to, to actually look at and to be concerned about in terms of analyzing it as if it's healthy or not, like if it's, you know, in proper working order? Yeah. Well, we always want to be keeping track of discharge. So I actually, at drbrighton.com, I have a whole article just dedicated to decoding your discharge. Um, because, you know, uh, there, there can be, you know, things that show up. So if you've got like, uh, thin and it's fishy odor, that can be bacterial vaginosis, thick, white and clumpy yeast infection. If it's got, you know, you've got green and thick discharge going on, that could be gonorrhea. So we want to be looking at discharge. Um, but the, the, why I bring it up, um, you, you know, those, those are abnormal, abnormal, uh, amounts of discharge. It is normal cyclically every month to have an raw egg white consistency discharge showing up. And I bring this up because, uh, well, that one, that's a, that's fertile cervical mucus. That's a sign that ovulation is not too far behind. And uh, if you've been on birth control, uh, you won't experience this because the way that hormonal birth control works is to stop you from ovulating. The IUDs, um, you know, like Marina, uh, Kylina, Skyla, those can be an exception. Uh, not everyone stops ovulating with those, but when it comes to like the pill, the ring, the, um, you know, the patch, those are really meant to stop you from ovulating. And so you won't see that fertile cervical mucus. And so women often when they come off and they start ovulating again, um, they can be quite concerned because they're like, what is all of this? What is happening right now? Um, and that is totally normal, healthy cervical mucus. And we do want to see healthy cervical mucus because that it's a change in the mucus that makes basically a super highway for sperm to reach the egg. Now, again, if you don't want to get pregnant, then, you know, use a, a method. All you have to do is prevent sperm from, you know, being introduced <laughs> to the egg. That, that's what, that's the main goal there. Um, but if you do want to get pregnant, that is something that you want to see. And with fertility awareness method, so it's not the same as the rhythm method. Sometimes people will get those two confused. Um, and the rhythm method is essentially like uh, based on this archaic premise that we all like ovulate on day 14. It's always the same day every single month. That's not true. Okay. You could ovulate on day 10 one month and then day 14 the next month. Like ovulation can shift because 
as women, we're super in tune with our environment and stress impacts us greatly. And 2020 is like the great stress test um, that everybody's having horrible periods (laughs) and all kinds of things are happening to hormones because as women, we, our body is constantly surveying the environment saying, is it safe to have a baby? And if at any point it's not, your body in being really wise is going to keep you safe by shutting down your fertility. So that's whether we're like over exercising, under eating. I mean, your body doesn't know over running from like tigers every single day. There's predators (laughs) everywhere. It doesn't know if you're in a famine or if you're just trying to fit into a dress um, that you want to wear. Um, Your body doesn't understand the difference in those because it's just surveying what's happening. And then of course, tremendous stressors, which you know, we have to talk about like, you know, I think like a lot of people are being like, they're trying to like toxic positivity their way through 2020, which may have been working for them like pre 2020. But now it's just like, no, the lights have been turned up and you have to just own it. Like, and to, and I just see a lot of people that are like, it's like, just trust the process and it's all going to be okay. And it's like, nothing about 2020 has been okay, guys. Like, exactly. That's okay. Like, it's okay. I think it, you know, for a lot of my patients, I see, it's a bigger stressor for them to try to like, you know, smile and keep carrying on right. than it is to just say, okay, I'm not okay. I need more support. I'm not okay with what's happening. Um, and that's important because you can gauge. I mean, this is another way that your period and your cycle is telling you like what's going on. If your periods are getting worse um, in terms of like worse pain, worse PMS, that's that can be an indicator of a lot of stress going on in your life and that you have to manage that. And it's not that like, I just want to be clear. There is so much that's out of our control in 2020. It's not about being in control. I say this as an A-type personality who's like, if I could just control this thing, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> it's about, and I think like, you know, as we're talking and we've been talking about kids, I'm like, that's like what motherhood ta- teaches you, right? I think like exactly. when you go to birth, you're like, here's my birth plan. This is why I wrote my book on the um, the new mom's guide to navigating the first, fourth trimester is because you make your birth plan and you spend all this time on this birth plan. And then all bets are off. All bets are off when you come to birth. And yet postpartum is pretty predictable. And there's a lot you can do to recover your body. And yet we spend no time thinking about that. Mm. Um, But, you know, really, it's not about what you can control. It's about how you can control its impact on you. So, yes, you know, someone may lose their job and that is incredibly stressful. And that may be something where it's like, you know, I'm staying awake every night, like thinking about this. Okay. We need to set bedtime an hour earlier. If we can, we need to start getting some stress reduction practices going, maybe start journaling ways to release these thoughts. If you do wake up, write them down, let them go, go back to bed. Like it's about like, how do you shift and you adapt? Because it's not the, you know, it's, it's the adaptable organism who survives. And that's what we want to see is like, how can we adapt? So yes, we've got lots of stress. Yes. It's bad for our hormones. Yes. It's bad for fertility. Yes, it's bad for a period. And yet you are a very, very resilient creature and you can adapt. And that's the beauty of it. You just have to get the right tools. And what are the right tools? The ones that work for you. That's really the the ones that work for you. So if you are someone who's doing fertility awareness method, you are trying to become pregnant or you're just trying to fix your periods and you're like, 2020 is just really hard for me. What's going on? it's 2020. Like that's what's right. going on. Um, and so, you know, with fertility awareness method, the other thing 
that I want to say is that, um, it, you know, when done perfectly, it, it rivals the pill in terms of its efficacy. So um, it can be a very effective method. You know, when we, uh, when you're in medical school, you're taught like, I mean, doctors will make jokes and I don't particularly think this is funny, but they'll say, oh, that's the method you're using. I call that the see you when you're pregnant method. Right. Or, oh, come back and see you when you're pregnant. Um, and it was really my patients who, I mean, I just kept adding these patients who were like, I've been using fertility awareness method, uh, you know, for this long and I want to get pregnant. And then they were pregnant within a month, three months. And I'm like, Whoa, what is going on here? Um, they made me believers and it's a method that I adopted. And I was like, you know, wow, this is, I mean, here I am like, you know, over five years of using this and yeah, no unintended pregnancies. So, um, you know, with that, I think it's a great method. Uh, if it works for you in terms of pregnancy prevention, it's good to meet with a fertility awareness educator to really get it dialed in. You do have to abstain from, uh, any semen being introduced into the vagina for, um, a period of time, like at least six days out of the month, or, um, you know, you're going, you're going to want to use like a barrier method, um, or, you know, you're, you're, you don't want to do something else. Um, and with it, you're not just tracking these physical symptoms, but you're also tracking your basal body temperature. So looking at looking for a temperature spike. And so what happens is that in, you know, somewhere in we say mid cycle, cause it's the easiest way to teach about the menstrual cycle, but it really depends what's true for you, but you'll have your period while you're on your period your uterus is shedding the lining. So there was no baby. Let's just clean house and start over again. And your ovaries though, they have a totally different agenda. They're like, yeah, uterus, you do whatever you want. And we are going to get an egg ready. And so that's when estrogen's rising. Estrogen spikes, then luteinizing hormone spikes. That's the brain. And it signals the ovaries to release an egg. And that's when we ovulate. And so it's going to be in that time period where you're seeing that LH spike that we see a temperature spike. And that tells us that ovulation is going to follow. And if this feels really complicated, there, um, there are things like natural cycles or daisy fertility monitor um, that can help you uh, get it dialed in. It's, you know, using mathematics. It's a you know, special thermometer uh, partnered with mathematics to figure out when your fertile window is, but even like, I think those are great, but you still want to pay attention to your body and still understand what other signs and symptoms are coming up because you, you don't want to miss, uh, if you're not wanting to have a baby, you, you don't want to miss any data that could be pointing towards fertility. So is that an app? That was the la- actually the last question that I was going to ask you about uh, periods was tracking. Is Are there any certain apps that you recommend to take notes and, you know, try to track your period, I guess, a little bit easier? Or do you just use old fashioned pen and paper? Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, so, you know, flow app is one that um, a lot of my patients uh, enjoy dot is another one. Um, I like I kind of hesitate with this question, because I got, I just got personally a little bit freaked out about um, apps data collecting and the potential for them to be manipulating with me with marketing based on Mm -hmm. where I'm at with my menstrual cycle and what 
symptoms I'm reporting. They also would know when I'm having sex and that felt a little awkward for me. Oh, right. Um, and so it's just something that I'm like, you, you want to, you want to go through the terms of service and you want to vet the app that you're going to be using. I actually switched to using my notes, um, uh, in my, in, uh, my phone that I have an iPhone. So my notes, um, and taking notes that way, it's cumbersome. It's so much easier to put stuff into, um, in app. And then um, one, and then uh, another app is uh, Tia, T-I-A. Um, that is great for tracking, but you can also put in information about your birth control um, and understand what's, you know, when it's time to go see a doctor, um, if you're having birth control side effects and things like that. So, um, you know, in terms of other apps out there, I'm like, just make sure you, you know uh, what they're doing through data. And if you're like, I don't really care, you know, my thing is I was like, I don't want it to like show up when, um, you know, like, you know, that I'm like PMSing and then Facebook's like showing me ads for chocolate or something. And I know (laughs) that neurotransmitter wise, I am more susceptible to that. Um, Right. (laughs) That's like, you know, one uh, bit of caution that I had around that. And then, you know, always be careful with free apps. Um, And the reason why is that, you know, free apps can be more likely to be selling your data because they, nothing's free in life, you have to make your money, or they're doing a lot of advertising. And I actually had a um, free app that, uh, and this was when I got pregnant, and I'd been using this app. And I got pregnant, and it was like, oh, your period's missing. And it popped up a, a thing about like, um, you know, it, it was just basically like an anti-abortion ad that was like, you know, life like begins at conception and like, don't be a baby murder. It was like, just like, and being, I think I was like maybe six weeks pregnant and anyone who's been pregnant before, like, um, it, that you cry a lot. <laughs> like oh, yeah. I do. And I was like, so emotional seeing that because for me, it's like, you know, whatever, whatever your beliefs are about abortion, but in that moment, it just like triggered like, oh my God, what about a miscarriage? And what about like, oh, and it just was like, all. Oh, and it, I was like, this is not cool this is not cool. And this is like this ad that just got popped up to me. And, um, so that's the other thing is just to be aware of the like ads, you know, ads can be popping up to you as well. If you don't want to see ads and like, and if you are an emotionally fragile state, which like, I mean, like we hate to say that as women, right. That like six to 10 weeks pregnant, you're emotionally fragile, but (laughs) you really can be. Yeah, like, yeah, late pregnancy too, I feel like the last yeah. few weeks. But that's such totally. a good point about the advertisements. I, I just read that recently, um, I think a few months ago about how the apps do some of them. Um, I'm not sure which ones that they sell your data. And I was pretty freaked out about that as well. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, so jumping into the pill, because I know I definitely want to talk about this. Uh, you know, I would just love to just do like a brief overview of what you've discussed in your book beyond the pill about, you know, doctors using it as kind of like a magic pill. Um, I know I personally don't really like that, that doctors just tend to, and I'm just speaking generally, obviously, that prescribing it kind of like a Band-Aid and they're not really looking at the why if you have a particular symptom, um, And so, I I mean, I remember for me personally, I think I was first prescribed the pill when I was, I think only like 13 or 14, because I had like a few, like literally just a couple 
pimples a month and I was complaining about it to my doctor and so they prescribed it to me and I was shocked and I was just like why I mean at that at that point I mean I was still kind of like in the crushing on boys phase I always felt like I was too young for like being or needing any sort of birth control so I'm like why am I being prescribed birth control I'm only 13 or whatever so uh why is it that doctors do kind of treat the pill like a magic pill or like a band-aid and then I guess what's what is the appropriate approach instead of of um, or how they should be using the pill? Yeah, and firstly, that's crazy that you were thirteen and your doctor's like, "Hey, just shut down your reproductive system. We don't <laughs> yeah. know what happens if you do this over your like for long periods over your lifetime." But right. here you go. Yeah, um, luckily I didn't. But I yeah. yeah. Well, and at that time we didn't even have the studies showing the association of beginning the pill and uh, suicidal ideation in teens, like their depression can be so severe that they take their own life when they start birth control. So um, it's, it's kind of crazy to me. I mean, I started the pill when I was 17. I thought, um, I mean, my doctor was like, Hey, those really long, painful periods can go away. And by the way, like when you become sexually active, like you, uh, you know, you can't get pregnant. You won't get pregnant. Yay. Um, and I was <laughs> right. like, yeah, no more painful periods. Sign me up. Like I was you right. know, eating more than seven days and vomiting and it was bad. And, uh, yeah. And then, um, yeah. And then I went through my own bouts of like depression, having, there's just a lot of issues that I went through, um, being on birth control. And I talk about that in my book. And at the time, you know, I got the same, you know, story that most of us are still getting, which is just, it's all in your head. It's you. It can't be the birth control pill. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a very strange thing to me that we're told like, oh, your hormones, um, they can make you crazy and they can make you feel like, you know, all of these horrible emotions. So we'll just give you synthetic hormones to shut them, you know, shut down your natural hormones. And then when you start to have symptoms, they're like, oh no, like synthetic hormones can't do that. That makes no sense because the natural receptors that you have in your body, those synthetic hormones are docking on them as well. So, you know, a couple of things to understand is that um, birth control elicits its effect via your brain. So when we're talking about anything that shuts down ovulation, so the hormonal birth controls, um, again, IUD may or may not, um, but anything that shuts down ovulation is doing it at the brain level. So it works in your head. So it's no surprise you get some symptoms that are associated with your head. Um, so that's first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that you are a cyclical creature by nature, which means you have ebbs and flows of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone throughout the month. When you're on hormonal birth control, it's essentially a flat line. You are just static. So you don't get those fluctuations anymore. So um, there's a colleague of mine, Dr. Lara Brighton. Uh, the first time she said this to me, it just like felt like a very like offensive thing to like hear as a woman. And yet it was so accurate and that she's like, it's a temporary chemical castration. And it is. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't even want to hear that. Um, and yet like, that's so very true. Like you are stopping the ovaries from functioning. So, you know, the problem with using birth control for symptom management is that we don't often ask why, um, people have symptoms. And so I've talked about this, um, in my book that that can be problematic because 
So you're having acne, you know, that's something that birth control can work very well for, but I hate to break it to people who are on it right now. It's probably going to be a whole lot worse when you come off of birth control because it's not actually addressing why you have acne. It's shutting down hormones that can lead to acne, but it's not addressing like, why are those hormones out of balance to begin with? But my biggest concern is that when we start, you know, we, we put young women on birth control for irregular periods, which could be PCOS, it could be hypothyroidism for painful periods. We know that there is a correlation that the, you know, the more painful your periods are and the longer you're on the pill, then the more likely you're going to have endometriosis diagnosis in your future. Um, there can be other things going on. And instead of <clears throat> really doing our due diligence, investigating why, listening to her story, doing appropriate lab testing. We're just saying, here's the pill. Great. You you bleed every month if you want um, or not, because these aren't real periods that you get on birth control. So they're not necessary to have. They're just medication-induced withdrawal bleeds. Again, the period is not the goal of the menstrual cycle. Fertilize, fertilized egg is. And so, you know, with that, it can be decades later that this woman then discovers that like, wow, I, I have something like polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it, it has polycystic ovaries in the name, but not everybody has those. Uh, really, the hallmarks are anovulatory cycles. You're not ovulating or you're ovulating irregularly and excess androgens. But the other thing with PCOS is that while um, doctors will narrow in on the hormonal piece, um, and be like, oh yes, we, we have to just control like the sex hormones and maybe insulin as well. They may not be talking to that woman about the fact that she's had higher risk for cardiovascular issues. So, um, cardiovascular issues like heart attack and stroke in the future, um, having diabetes, uh, there's just a lot of other issues that can ride along, not to mention that women with PCOS have higher incidence of anxiety and depression as well. So, a lot of the times the pills being passed, they're like, great, your period's coming regularly, even though it's not really a period, uh, you're fixed, you're done, let's call it a day. And no other discussion is had. Like there's a time and a place to use birth control, certainly for pregnancy prevention, a hormonal birth control could work really well for some women. Um, it can work really well for some women with endo to control their painful periods, but it's not the end of the story. And that's really what has happened is that it's like, Take your pill, be grateful that you have it, just say thank you, ask no questions, and informed consents aren't truly being done. And, you know, there are doctors out there doing that, but for everyone to understand that we have an ethical and legal ob um, obligation as a doctor to give you all the information in a way that you understand, okay? We can't just give you information, be like, we gave you information. You have to understand it and be able to ask questions about it have all of your questions answered and also be given alternatives to that. And that's just not happening. Like we're, I mean, I have so many patients who come to me and they're like, my doctor just said, go on the pill. My doctor just said, go on the pill. And then did they talk to you about what the alternatives are? No, they said, that's the only thing. And sometimes doctors being like, if you don't go on the pill, then, you know, I, I'm going to dismiss you. Like you have to be on the pill. Like that's, that's mm -hmm. it. Okay. No. Sorry, doctor. That's fine if you want to dismiss her. Um, but you don't get to pressure anyone because that's not informed consent. If you feel pressured into um, making a medical decision, you weren't really in the best state of mind to be giving your consent. Um, and then, you know, we also have women. So, you know, there's, there's that piece, but they like never got the full story on birth control. Like they're, when they asked about stroke, 
um, when they ask about cancer, the cancer is a big one where women will ask about cancer and their doctor's like, oh, there's a minimal risk for breast cancer, but the, but it prevents endometrial cancer and it prevents ovarian cancer. And it's like, uh, you know, it's so quick to jump on the positive of like what right. birth control can do and be dismissive of any of the negative. And I think that's why, so we're actually seeing now at this time that millennials and younger generations are rejecting birth control at a very high rate. So hormonal birth control, and they're going a different route. Um, I've been interviewed on this many times and, you know, something that I say over and over is that, you know, the, something unique about these generations is that they have witnessed what generations before them have gone through. Um, as I share stories about patients in my book, I share my story in my book of like the side effects that we've dealt with because the threat of an unintended pregnancy or unwanted pregnancy has just felt so scary. And we have been scared. And a lot of women's medicine decisions are based on fear. We're, we're, we're scared about things. And I, it's a very funny thing because, um, on social media, I'll have people, uh, I just actually put up a post about miscarriage risk and talking about like, this is your risk. And by the time you get into your forties, it's like 40% and above 45, like it's like, you know, 50 to 80%. And there, I got some messages of people being like, you're just scaring women with this information and this is not right. And I'm like, no, what is scary to women is withholding information. And like, we have to be able to normalize all these conversations and be able to have them because I had way more comments from women saying, thank you for normalizing this conversation. I've had multiple miscarriages. I did think I was the only one. I did think something was wrong with me. And it's like, statistically speaking, when we look at the probability of it, like you're not the only one. It's improbable. You are the only one. And yet that's so much of what happens in women's medicine. We with like women get information withheld from them. Um, they get, you know, scared. It's usually like you could get pregnant any day of the month. And that's so scary. Like get on birth control right now. Or like, oh, you know, you, you know, it's preventing ovarian cancer. Oh, you don't have a family history of ovarian cancer, but still you should take it. Ovarian cancer is really bad. Yes. Ovarian cancer is really bad. And birth control is one option. And there are other options as well. And it's also that like, if you want to use the pill, and I talk about this in my book, is that there are other things you can do too. It's not like you just take the pill and call it a day because birth control can you know do things like depleting nutrients. So that means you have to dial in your diet. Um, if your doctor has told you like, just eat a standard diet. No, the standard American diet is nutrient void. Okay. It doesn't have <laughs> enough right. nutrients. Like if you're on the pill, you need to be eating lots of leafy green vegetables, cruciferous mm. vegetables, getting high quality protein. Um, it's those things that doctors will sometimes dismiss. Again, it's why I said I'm unique. I actually have a degree in nutrition. Unlike other doctors who are like, yeah, no, I've never studied anything in nutrition. I just heard in medical school that it's worthless and it doesn't do anything. And it's like, except that like the majority of diseases we struggle with in the United States that are causing chronic illness, like they can be prevented with diet and lifestyle. Exactly, exactly. Gosh, yeah, that's just so crazy that you're talking about how millennials are rejecting hormonal birth control. I think most of our listeners actually do too. Um, I mean, I know that they're really into the fertility awareness method and, and those sorts of things. A lot of our listeners are at least. So I guess what what are some of you did talk about the risks and benefits of being on the pill? I'd like to dig just a little bit deeper into that. What are 
the benefits and risks, I know you mentioned some already, but then also how do you balance that with your decision whether or not to actually be on any sort of hormonal treatment? I, I recently saw a Netflix miniseries. Uh, I, I think it was called like Sex Explained, obviously not <laughs> the, the best source of information, but I thought it was interesting that at least in this documentary that they balance the risks of the pill with the risks of being pregnant, because I've heard that same thing, like, you know, oh, the pill, you have these risks of stroke or whatnot. But then they said, oh, but you know, if you get pregnant, your risk is even higher. And so that's kind of what they were balancing out the risks of the pill versus pregnancy. But I would just love to hear, uh, you know, from your perspective, how should women approach um, balancing the benefits of and risks? And also, I guess, what's just like a high level overview of what what those are? So, let me ask you, when's the last time that you met someone who'd been pregnant for 10 or 20 years? <laughs> I have never. Yeah. Right. Not, yeah. So we have to also look at that because, um, you know, okay. So it's, we don't ovulate when we're pregnant. So often, uh, the pill gets compared to being pregnant. Oh, it's just like you're pregnant. Um, it's just like you're pregnant. Like it's just teach psyching your body out to think it's pregnant. Well, when you're pregnant, you have uh, different estrogens going on. You have estriol, which is a, it's not as potent as estradiol, which is what we have in our cyclical ERs. Um, it's uh, like in terms of like, you know, estradiol can be carcinogenic in high amounts. This is your natural estrogen. Like too much gets crazy, okay? Any hormone too much gets crazy in your body. Um, and yeah, estriol is like really nourishing. It's like, I mean, it is like, it's reason why it's your mama hormone. Like you have it, right? It's very nourishing to your system and it has protected benefits. You won't find that in a pill. That's not in a pill. Progesterone is what you're making while you're pregnant. Um, it helps with neuroplasticity. It helps with building the myelin sheath of your brain. It's very good for brain health, very good for bone health, very good for breast health. Um, it's again, it's going to stimulate GABA receptors in your brain, which helps you feel that sense of euphoria, that calm. Um, why like, you know, you're just loving life so much more progestin is what you find in birth control. That's not the same thing. It's used interchangeably all the time by researchers and doctors, and that's inaccurate. Progestin is a synthetic molecule, and it looks completely different at the biochemical level. So when you look at the actual structure, it is different than progesterone. It can mimic it, just like xenoestrogens, which are like environmental toxins, can mimic estrogen in your body. It doesn't make them a good thing. It doesn't make them beneficial. So to understand that, like, I hate that that comparison. Like, I get it. And, like, we do need to use it. We do need to have that conversation. But I kind of hate it because it uh, it makes you think, like, you're, you're doing this, like, really good thing and, like, nourishing your body with the hormones that you would get in pregnancy. And it just feels a little flippant and dismissal of, like, how freaking awesome pregnancy is and everything that your body is doing. Right. So, you know, often what that will get compared is um, the risk of clots. So clots can show up. Uh, in your legs. So usually the calf uh, is what, that's the deep vein thrombosis. You would hear DVT. Um, there is a risk with taking birth control and having a DVT, a pulmonary embolism in your lungs or a stroke, which is a clot in the brain. Um, and there is that risk there, but yeah, it is less than being postpartum. Postpartum is a much higher risk of having a clot. However, postpartum is a finite window. So when we right. make that comparison to understand 
that yes, the risk in pregnancy can be higher and the risk um, postpartum is, is way higher. And yet when you look at that, they are much higher and yet they also are finite periods of time. They're mm-hmm. not 10 years, 20 years. We have right. insulin resistance that happens with hormonal birth control. So if you have something like polycystic ovarian syndrome or uh, type 2 diabetes, that's a consideration of like, we have to talk about that because insulin resistance can be like that, you know, a medication that makes that work can be really problematic for you. Um, And when I say this, I want everyone to recognize that we have to view this through the lens of what's true for you. I love the science. I love that we have these, uh, you know, general inferences that we can make. And yet, Within science, it's recognized there are outliers. It is recognized that there are, there's going to be this bell-shaped curve that we're going to be like, hey, you know, statistically significant information here. And then there's going to be the people that are on the outside. They're the outliers of like things happen to them. That's important because sometimes doctors, you know, they make it sound like it's completely impossible that you'll ever have, a, you know, a stroke or a clot. And yet I get women writing me all the time who have, who've, you know, there was uh, one gal just on TikTok who was like, I had nine clots. It's a miracle I'm alive because I was on birth control. If you have a family history of a clotting disorder or you have um, people in your family with lupus, um, you may be at higher risk for that. Um, Anyone with antiphospholipid syndrome may be at higher risk for that. So your doctor should be asking about your family history. Your doctor should be understanding about your own personal history. I've had um, patients who have had you know, clots on birth control and they were like, yeah, well, I had had a clot when I was much younger. And I'm like, wait, and your doctor still prescribed you the pill? Well, they never asked me about it and I didn't know I needed to tell them about it. I'm like, the wow. patient doesn't know what they need to tell their doctor. Right. Their doctor needs to ask about it. Um, so you know, with that, with the insulin resistance, I want to go back to that piece because that's often something too. Whether uh, they'll you'll you'll hear them say, "Well, it's you know similar to what we see in pregnancy with that mild insulin resistance. Like it, that's just similar to pregnancy, so no big deal." And yet, nobody is pregnant for decades. And exactly. So these studies, we've not had a study. So let's say you'd start a birth control at 13 years old, and you just stopped ovulating, and then you come off of it at like 53 years old. We don't have a study that's like, what happens when you never have your own natural hormones and never have your own cycle? You've gone through your entire life on birth control and now you're in menopause. We don't know. So this is something, uh, it was Dr. Elizabeth Kissling who said, uh, long-term menstrual suppression via birth control is the longest uncontrolled, is the largest uncontrolled medical experiment we've ever had. So we just don't know. And we have to be honest in talking about it. So I will often get pushback where people are like, you're going to scare women. Don't talk to them about that. You'll scare them out of taking birth control. And I'm like, no, there, there's so many. The, the, I actually just said this last night that I was like, man, I think at the end of 2020, no one's going to be really trusting medicine or science anymore because there just is this sense that information's being withheld. And I say this, you guys, I still want you to trust your doctor. I still want you to trust science. Like I always want you to be skeptical and always question everything and always question it through the lens of what is true for you. And yet just what I'm seeing the trend, like I will like, uh, you know, I have people in my audience that are like, I, you know, they don't trust the study. If I like, I'm saying they're like, I would have believed you until you put up like the new England journal of Edison. I don't trust that now. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That's new. <laughs> like what's wow. going on here? 
Um, and I think a lot of it comes out of also witnessing on social media, there are medical doctors on there bullying um, people into saying, don't, you know, don't be sharing your story. Don't be sharing this information. We're seeing, um, you know, this like, oh, don't share this with women. Like we have to, you know, keep this information for women. Otherwise they'll be too scared to take it. And it's like, that's just a throwback to the, uh, you know, exploitive birth control trials that happened where they didn't give women all the information. There was no informed consent. And those who died were just forgotten and brushed under the rug. Like, that's the origins of birth control. And right. I think that if we want to have trust from the public, we have to be honest and forthcoming. And we have to talk about like, there are just some things that science and medicine do not know. And we have to be humble enough to learn from our patients and to listen to their stories. And when a study tells me this would never happen, but my patients like it happened, it's happening. I'm like, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to choose to believe you first and do right by you than default to a study that wasn't looking at your unique makeup or wasn't looking at your age. Cause that's the other thing is that most birth control studies are on young, healthy populations. So no preexisting conditions. Um, you are young. I mean, most, <laughs> mostly who's going to subject themselves to medical experimentation are going to be like, you know, college age kids who need money. Like we've right. all been there. Right. <laughs> um, and like, I say that laughingly, it's kind of sad. Um, and yeah, like I've, I've, I've never did a, a trial, but I'm like, I had lots of friends who were donating blood and doing things <laughs> like that, um, as well. So to recognize that like, if you're in your forties and you're using birth control for perimenopausal symptoms, it's probably not going to work really well. And, um, we don't actually know. We don't have any clue what's gonna what's gonna happen in all aspects of your body because birth control impacts every system of your body. We know that. So we've talked about the mood issues. We've talked about uh, you know nutrient issues that uh, we know that it is associated with certain autoimmune conditions, Crohn's disease being a big one of using the pill specifically. Um, we know it can alter your microbiome. It can lead to intestinal hyperpermeability. Um, we can see changes in skin. So melasma is something. Um, anyone who's had a baby knows about the pregnancy mask. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the hyperpigmentation of your skin. It, it doesn't go away just because you stop birth control. So that's another thing just to keep in mind is that <clears throat> if you start to see those changes, talk to your doctor sooner than later. Um, and we've covered the cardiovascular issues as well. And then there can be the, we lose our libido. We have more vaginal infections going on. We start having pain with sex. And these are other aspects. I mean, I was on the pill. I had chronic yeast vaginitis and I was having pain with sex. And my, no, no one ever mentioned to me that I, it could be birth control. And I talk about this in my book that, um, my doctor, he was actually on vacation and I think she was a nurse practitioner maybe. Um, or maybe she was a gynecologist either way. She was the worst. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> I went and saw her and I was just like having pain and she recommended that I get a surgery, an experimental surgery wow. to cut my pedundal nerve. And she's like, you'll stop having pain with sex, but you also like won't ever have an orgasm again. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> anyone who reads Beyond the Pill, you you will read like all like the top 10 reasons why like orgasms are good for you. They're super good for your health. They're very there's a reason 
why our clitoris has so many dang nerve endings. And (laughs) like, I mean, the hormones that get released are really, really important during orgasm. So it's not just, I mean, so often, like it was sex. It's always about like, oh, like that's just pleasure and pleasure is negotiable and all that stuff. And I'm like, no, oxytocin, you guys, oxytocin. Right. (laughs) That like excess cortisol from stress can come in and be like, I'm going to age all your cells. Like all your cells just going to ramp up their aging process. And oxytocin is like, no, you're not. Absolutely not. Um, It's so good for your brain. I mean, it's just a really, really great hormone. Um, but you know, that's what she had said to me. And I remember I made a follow up with my doctor when he was back and he was so angry. He was so angry. I remember he was like, he's this larger man and his face just like turning red flushing, um, because he was so angry that she said that to me. And he was like, no, I think I was like 23 or 24 at the time. And he was like, absolutely not. This is not something that you should be considering right now. Like this is Um, and you know, still no one ever brought up the pill. And when I got off the pill, all of those things went away and I'm like, oh, okay. So (laughs) what was that about? And that's when I started looking in the research and I'm, and I, like many women were like, I don't want to talk about this and I'm a freak. Something's wrong with me. This is super private, super personal. Um, and I actually didn't even want to put it in my book. I wrote it and then I like deleted it. I was like, no. And my husband was the one that was like, you always say like, share your story because you never know who will be healed or know the potential of healing by reading your story. And I left it in. I still am like, oh my God, my vagina is in a book. Um, (laughs) but it's so true. And I thought something was so, so wrong with me. And I was so, so broken when it turns out that like, it wasn't me. It was that daily pill. Yeah, that's crazy that that experience that you had. It kind of reminds me of sort of my experience with pelvic floor related issues after having my first child that, you know, just the how lost the healthcare professionals were when I was first describing my symptoms. And, you know, they just really jumped to other conclusions instead of just thinking, oh, well, maybe your pelvic floor is messed up from having a child because you just had one and you need to go to pelvic floor physical therapy instead of, you know, cutting off your nerve endings or something like that. Let's take a moment to give it up for pelvic floor physical therapists because one, they are amazing. I refer all the time. I just think they're so, so crucial. And two, I can imagine how frustrated they are operating in the medical system with how often they don't get that referral of people they get oh my gosh, or yes. get dismissed. Um, yeah, I have friends who are doctors of physical therapy and who are told, like, sometimes by medical doctors that, like, oh, you're, you're not a real doctor. I'm like, oh, right. but you can't do anything for her pelvic floor. So write that referral. Exactly. I know. I'm a huge fan of pelvic floor physical therapy just because of my personal experience. And so... We ha- often have pelvic floor physical therapists on just to, I'm sure my listeners are like, oh, there's another pelvic floor physical therapist on, but it's really important, especially, you know, since most women don't know that not all women should be doing Kegels, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love, uh, I know that we're running out of time, but maybe you could just briefly just talk about, I know that you mentioned it in your book about vitamins and then other sorts of natural ways, just a high level overview of how to fix certain conditions. I know that you mentioned like magnesium and other sorts of vitamins. I personally have really noticed the benefit of taking magnesium. I used to have terrible cramps until I started using it as a supplement. It was just night and day different. So Mm -hmm. maybe just quickly you could go over that. 
Yeah. Um, so one, if you're on birth control, take a multivitamin or prenatal because you need to replenish those nutrient stores. You know, one of the nutrients that birth control depletes is folate. Um, that's problematic because like with the pill, with typical use, nine out of a hundred people will become pregnant in a year. So keep that in mind because even if you're like, I'm on the pill, no big deal. If you are sexually active in your reproductive years, you need to be taking a prenatal or multivitamin. Um, <clears throat> And really like the difference between those two. So like you can go to drbrighton.com and you can look at our prenatal plus versus our multivitamin. Um, if you want to get those, great. If not, you can use the labels there as a guide. Um, and you'll see the prenatal has higher amounts of iron and the multivitamin has no iron. So if you are not menstruating and you are choosing to con be continuous with your pill, Go with the non-iron source unless you've had testing showing that you need iron. And the reason for that is that iron can become toxic in the body in excess amounts. So we just want to make sure that you are um, not overdoing it with iron. Um, so, you know, that, those are two uh, considerations. If you are having period problems, you know, chapter four uh, of my book really goes through all the different period problems. Um, and you know, it, it, we have diet lifestyle and supplementation. I will just be very honest with everybody. You cannot out supplement a poor diet and lifestyle. So you can't skip sleep and then think like, Oh, well I'll just take like B vitamins the next morning and have more energy. It doesn't <laughs> work that way. Um, and so that's, um, you know, so like, so often I will, I will see, you know, I, I formulate and have my own supplement line and I will see other supplement companies that like make these kinds of promises. And I'm like, and you know, I'm like, like, I know it's not good for your business for to tell people like you really need to work on your diet and lifestyle first. And there's no magic like pill, but like, yeah, that's what you need to be doing. Cause I will see people out there being like, just take this and everything will magically go away. I'm like, <laughs> right. Don't change anything else. Yeah. I'm like, I wish, I wish that's how it worked. I wish you could just like binge drink, stay up all night, you know, act like, you know, you're like 21 and then like, everything's going to be <laughs> fine. Like it just doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, as you talked about, you know, magnesium can be really great for painful periods. It also can be great for sleep issues. You want to choose something like magnesium bisglycinate or uh, you just basically don't want to choose magnesium citrate if you are someone who gets those period poops, like I said. Um, magnesium can help with prostaglandin. So, um, and the other thing that can help, and back it up, everybody, if you remember, we talked about this earlier, uh, prostaglandins are the hormone-like chemicals that stimulate uterine contractions. Yes, in pregnancy, but also in um, uh, when you get your period. So, with that, um, you know, magnesium citrate can stimulate the bowels. So be careful with that. But these prostaglandins are made from omega fatty acids. You make them from omega-6, then you get more potent prostaglandins, a lot more cramping. You make them from omega-3, you get effective but not over-the-top prostaglandins, and your periods are much more manageable. So looking at uh, eating cold water fish and smaller fish um, – we do have to be concerned these days. I'm like, geez, man, when I was a kid, we didn't have to worry. We were just like eating shark. We could eat anything. Now I'm like, no, we can't have tuna. No, we can't have swordfish. No, we can't. We just went through this. We were trying to get fish tacos at a place and all they had was like large <laughs> fish. And I'm like, we can't eat. We're not going to eat any of that. Um, and is it a big deal if you do it once? No, guys. If you're pregnant, though, mm, stay away from it. And my son has um, – he has an autoimmune condition of his brain. So we don't mess around with anything that can affect brain health. Um, 
But smaller fish like sardines, mackerel, and salmon's still cool. Uh, try to get uh, wild-caught, not farm-raised salmon. Um, the reason for that is that you need what the salmon eat in the wild. That's how they make their omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and sometimes farm fish is actually just like dyed so it actually looks pink. Like they might have the same nutrient quality. Kind of lame. Um, but you can also supplement if you're like someone – I meet people all the time who are like, I don't like fish. I hate fish. Um, supplement. <laughs> so you can take, um, you know, omega-3 fatty acid. Don't be getting things from big box stores and vet your source. Um, so like in our company, we do third-party testing. We make sure that everything, um, like I take all my supplements myself. So I will tell you guys that. I also give them to my child. Um, so I'm very much like vet this. Make sure it is what it says it is and it doesn't have any contaminants. The other thing too is that some companies, um, especially like if you get like uh, fish oil and it's like 180 caps for like $13, that's probably going to be cut with canola oil or something else. Like, right. And now you're bringing in omega-6 fatty acids. Um, so, you know, supplementing wisely. Omega-3s, um, they're, you know, great in supporting brain health, cardiovascular health. I actually have a whole article on omega-3 fatty acids at drbrayton.com. And I also have uh, listed in there plant-based omega-3s, which is much, much harder. And as I talk about and beyond the pill, you need your natural estrogen to convert the, uh, the precursors into omega-3s from these plant-based sources. So if you're on birth control, you're actually better to take fish oil because you're going to, we're already inefficient and it's worse if you don't have your own natural estrogen, um, present. So omega-3 fatty acids going to help with those prostaglandins going to help those periods can also help those moods as well. Breast tenderness can do a lot of stuff. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I talk about in my book, so we definitely talk a lot about B vitamins, um, you know, you said your audience, a lot of moms, everybody's familiar with like B6 when it comes to first trimester nausea. Um, <laughs> at least you should be because like, right. uh, you know, 25 to 50 milligrams, uh, under doctor supervision, um, can be really, really beneficial with that, but it's also really helpful overall. I mean, I'm a fan of using, uh, B complex and not just one because, when you go in with like B6, it's like, you know, unless we've tested, it's like, great. Like your periods might get a little bit better, but like your energy is still lagging. Well, that might be because of B5 or B12. So mm -hmm. taking a B complex is the best way to get like a well-rounded uh, source of that. And B vitamins can be a total game changer when it comes to um, PMS symptoms, feeling bloated, feeling that fatigue, um, having enough energy throughout the day. Um, feeling sharp, like cognitively there. Um, that's like really important, especially like in the postpartum phase. Um, I have all my new moms on B vitamins. And then we talk about adaptogenic herbs as well. And um, herbs can be fantastic, but know that if you are pregnant, it's never a good time to just be starting herbs or experimenting with them. Um, right. And the big reason for that is that we just don't have studies on a lot of these. And I, for one, I just don't mess around when like you're, right. you're creating like a new entire human being. We don't mess around <laughs> with that. Exactly. Um, and so while like ashwagandha is really great, uh, it can be great breastfeeding. It can help with breast milk and it can be really great for libido and for getting better sleep and healthier adrenals, you don't want to be taking that in pregnancy. And so if you are on anything, uh, you want to stop as soon as you have a positive pregnancy test and definitely talk to your doctor. 
Um, but you know, other herbs like Vitex, Vitex is one that can help. So if we were talking about those shorter periods, um, Vitex can help with progesterone levels, extending those periods. We can also see that, um, you know, there, there are some people that will use Vitex, um, in the first trimester, even the second trimester with women, you have to work with a qualified practitioner for that because, you know, that's, I mean, that can, can be comparable to using progesterone therapy and that you have to be really careful with because any drop in progesterone levels can result in a miscarriage. Um, so yeah. we just want to be like really careful. And so I am not endorsing that or telling you to do that. I would say that like, you have to talk to someone and honestly, if you need Vitex in the first trimester, um, you, you may very well need progesterone therapy and that might be more effective. So that's why you want to talk to your doctor about that. Um, but if you are trying to get pregnant, trying to have easier, you know, PMS phase, um, extend your luteal phase, Vitex can be really, um, beneficial for that. So that's kind of high level. Like we just went through like a bunch of, uh, stuff. You definitely will find way more details in my book. i and if you can't wait for that, you can head over to drbrighton.com um, and you can look there and find a lot of information as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brighton. I really enjoyed our conversation and I, I learned so much. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation.